This is AQR's The Curious Investor, a show that breaks down some of the most important ideas in finance to help us make better investment decisions. I'm Dan Villalon. And I'm Gabe Figali. Welcome to episode two. Last week, we discussed silly things investors do. And today, we're actually taking things a step further and talking about the building blocks of investment returns. We're talking factors, what they are, how they work, and how you can use them. So let's say, let's say Gabe and I want to build a, a factor portfolio, and we, and we want to pitch it to you. And we say, okay, Ronan, we looked at the data. Last year, stocks that start with a consonant outperform stocks that start with a vowel. We found this factor. What do you say to that? First of all, you two are going to pitch me something? <laughs> I wouldn't take the meeting. That's Ronan Israel. He's the head of the Global Alternative Premia Group at AQR. That group uses some of the most tried-and-true factors to build investment strategies across different asset classes. Ronan knows a lot about factors, academically and as a practitioner. Right, which is probably why he won't hear us out on our consonant versus vowel stock strategy. Why would random things like the letter of the alphabet, the position of the moon, why would that drive returns? There's no economic basis. There's no economic theory to support it. In order for a factor to be worth Ronan's time, or anyone's time really, there's got to be a good reason. So I would define a factor as a systematic way of investing that is backed up importantly by scientific data or empirical evidence and has economic intuition behind it as well, such that you know why the returns existed in the past and are likely to continue to be there in the future. Factors mean different things to different people. But here we're talking about repeatable strategies that try to generate excess returns. Right, and factors can be difficult to pin down because there's a lot of noise out there. Cleaning up that noise and finding the patterns, that's where the fun begins. Financial markets are just seemingly just extremely messy. This is Sarah Zhang, a senior researcher at AQR. You know, you have stock returns moving all over the place, and it seems like there's no order to the madness. But I would say there's probably some order and some disorder to financial markets. Factors sort of drive some of that order. Factors are like a method to the madness. Well, well, some of the madness, at least. They try and explain why the markets work the way they do. But for our purposes, when we say factors, we're really talking about asset characteristics that try to predict returns. To make sure that's all clear, I'd like to present you with a sports analogy. Which is funny because you don't know that much about sports. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't matter. Okay, say you were a scout for the NBA and you had to predict which college athletes have the best chances of becoming a successful pro. There are lots of characteristics you could look at, like how high can they jump, the length of their wingspan, their shot accuracy. Those are some good ones. But there's also some not so good ones, like how good are they at video games and how well do they speak French? So taking that back to investing... We're looking for the good characteristics or factors that might help predict future performance. So let's get into the main factors that investors care about. Here's Ronan again. They are value, momentum, carry, some form of quality or defensive type of investing. There's a lot in what Ronan just said. Honestly, we could dedicate a full episode to each one of the factors he just listed out. But for now, let's do a quick rundown. 
Let's start with value. Value is probably the best known factor. And all it really means is you like cheap things and you dislike expensive things. So a value investor would generally look for a stock with a low price relative to its fundamentals, like stocks with a low price to earnings ratio. Factor number two, momentum. That basically means things that are improving are better than things that are deteriorating. The most well-known type of momentum is based on price. So like a basic momentum strategy overweight stocks that have outperformed their peers over the last year. Next up is carry. Probably the easiest way to think of carry is it's the return you make on an asset, assuming the price doesn't move. So in currencies, as an example, a carry-oriented investor likes currencies with higher interest rates and dislikes currencies with lower interest rates. And finally, defensive means liking high-quality or low-risk and disliking low-quality or high-risk. So think of something like a stock of a company that is profitable and where earnings and even the price are relatively stable. We like those kinds of stocks. There's two other factors that could also make this list, and those are trend following and volatility. Now, we're not going to get into those here, but if you want to learn more about them or any of the factors we're talking about, head to our website, aqr.com curious. So we've listed out the all-star factors here the ones the experts think can help generate positive returns. But the experts came to these conclusions for a reason. Those are the main factors that we believe have economic intuition and have long-term empirical evidence, are pervasive in that you can apply those ideas in many different markets, in many different geographies, in many different asset classes. So a factor's got to be rock solid in many situations to be counted in this elite pack. Let's go back to value. If we know that value works in U.S. stocks, one thing that we can do is see, does it work in U.K., in Japan, in Europe? Does it work for other asset classes? Can I take value and go, for example, to the currency market and choose currencies based off the things that look cheap and the ones that look expensive? So Ronan's hinting at something here. There may be other well-known factors that actually shouldn't be considered when making investment decisions. The biggest one, size. Size is the idea that small stocks tend to outperform big stocks. But as a factor, size doesn't clear some of the hurdles that the other factors do. There are a number of different reasons why we wouldn't include size in our list. The empirical evidence is not very robust. It tends to be very time period specific. It tends to not hold up When you go internationally, for example, if you try to test size out in a number of different ways, it doesn't hold up as well. It's surprisingly easy for an investor to fall into the trap of picking a bad factor. Think of it like this. Investors go hunting for factors by processing huge amounts of data. And it's easy to twist the data to come up with something that looks good but maybe it happened to just work in a specific country or throughout a specific decade. You very easily can go down the path of data mining where you can find a relationship that existed in the past that doesn't really capture anything truly economic and therefore won't exist in the future. One way to defend against data mining? Economic intuition. A factor needs to be explainable. It doesn't matter if a factor seems to work historically you need to have a theory for why. 
Take value, for example. There are reasons it works. When it comes to value, there are really two schools of thought. One is a risk-based argument. And what that really does is argue that there's something riskier about the cheap stocks. And the reason that you get compensated for owning them is you're willing to bear that risk. Any investor knows that the stock market is pretty risky. What this school of thought believes is that value stocks have even more risk associated with them. And that's where the extra returns might be coming from. You're getting paid more for taking more risk. The other way of looking at the world is more behavioral, which is to argue that things are not always priced correctly, that people make errors. Investors have certain subjective biases, they have certain cognitive biases, and they just simply make errors. This should sound familiar if you've heard episode one, where we talked about silly things investors do. Maybe other investors just consistently make inefficient choices, and a factor strategy is taking advantage of that. For value, it's possible that other investors are overly interested in sexy growth stocks and overly neglect boring, cheap stocks. The idea is that over time, these would revert to their fundamental values, and a value investor would be rewarded. You'd think, hey, finance has a bunch of smart people, so they've figured out which one is right, risk-based or behavioral-based. This is a raging debate in academia Is it risk? Is it behavioral? My feeling on it is it's a little bit of both. It could be some risk and it could be some behavioral. And what I think is important is that it doesn't necessarily matter which it is. As long as there is an economic intuition, be it risk, be it behavioral, or a combination of the two, you are confident that the returns exist for a reason and are likely to continue to exist in the future. And that's really what you care about. You care about persistence. So let's say we've met Ronan's criteria. We found a factor supported by decades of data in many places, and it's rooted in economic intuition. It can solidly be considered a good factor. That still doesn't mean it will always work. How often do you expect a factor to work? Is it 80% of the time, 70? Is that that really good? Is that incredible? Is that terrible? It really depends on the horizon, right? Over a long enough horizon, you expect a number to be a high percentage of the time. Over any short horizon, one year, let's say, you maybe expect it to be a little bit better than 50%, right? So that means that you can have many periods, short periods, of flat performance, of underperformance, uh, without giving you any pause in terms of the long-term efficacy. This is the key difference between what works means for investors and what works means in most other professions. If your mechanic could only get your car to work a little more than 50% of the time, well, you should probably fire your mechanic. But in the investing world, if a factor can help a little more than 50% of the time, well, that can be pretty valuable in the long run. We've covered a lot of the theory on factors, a lot of the why, but now let's turn to the how. Specifically, how does an investor go about building a portfolio to capture these returns? And for that, we turn back to Sarah Jang. Traditionally, when people invest in, let's say, the equity markets, they're just going long a basket of stocks. So let's say the S&P. 
So your starting point is your market portfolio, and you can tilt away from that market portfolio towards stocks that you like and away from stocks that you dislike, right? And it's actually a very popular way of capturing factors today is via this tilting slightly away from a traditional market index. There's a very popular style investing called smart beta. And that's essentially what smart beta is, is tilting away from the market cap weighted index. Using just stocks. Using just stocks in that particular example. Smart beta is the most basic way to implement factors. And the most common smart beta strategy uses a single factor to pick stocks. So for example, a value smart beta strategy picks stocks according to just one thing, their cheapness. And this is one way to get a bit of the value factor into a portfolio, but it's not the only way. Yeah, you can go farther than just overweighting and underweighting stocks. You can go long stocks that look good on a factor and short stocks that look bad on it. And actually, these long short factor strategies have become increasingly popular for alternative investors. So far, we've been talking about factors in stock markets. But that's not the only place where factors might work. Just to name a few others, there's government bonds, there's commodities, there's credit, there's also currencies. A sample long-short currencies portfolio might look like if you like a currency based on valuation, which in this case could be purchasing power parity, and it's also shown signs of appreciation, that might be a currency that you like, and that might be a currency you have on the long side of your portfolio. The currency on the other side would be a currency that doesn't look as good from a real exchange rate perspective that has been showing signs of depreciation that isn't offering attractive carry characteristics. For example, it has low interest rates. That might be a, a candidate for shorting that currency. It sounds like factors can be used to understand different asset classes. But even in just the stocks world, factors can get more complex. So let's see what happens when we refine things a bit. A very simple signal that is in the smart beta world is 12-month price momentum. This is Jacques Friedman. He's head of AQR's global stock selection team. So, yeah, he knows a little bit about how to choose good stocks. Here's a start. Just comparing every stock to every other stock. So let's just use the S&P 500. You could rank all 500 stocks on 12-month return and go long the winners and short the losers. Okay, Jacques is talking about the most basic form of momentum here. Taking the universe of stocks and dividing them into two categories. Prices that have gone up and prices that have gone down. But there's a better way to do this. Another thing you can do, which is more refined, is compare every stock to its industry peers. Do you have good 12-month return versus the average 12-month return for your industry? Just to bring Jacques' refinement to life, take a company that makes windshields. Instead of just seeing whether that company outperformed the market, we're going to see if that company outperformed its industry peers. That's more of an apples-to-apples -apples comparison, and empirically, a next-level way to use the momentum factor. Right, and I think we can actually do some more refining here. More relevant to that windshield manufacturer is how the auto companies are doing. So if the auto companies are doing poorly, even though today the windshield manufacturer is doing okay, in the future it's probably going to do worse because the orders are going to be going down or vice versa going up. Just to review, we have the momentum factor. We went from looking at a stock compared to the overall market to looking at a stock in comparison to its industry peers, and then looking at the momentum of industries that are economically related to that stock. 
For example, the momentum of a big customer of that company. At some point, these go from being well-known, like the factors that Ronan told us about, to proprietary, like the ones Jacques' team focuses on. And these take a ton of research to get right. Finding a characteristic is easy. Testing it to see whether it is predictive is also easy. But, but finding ones that, that quote-unquote work is hard. To make it into our models or our process, you know, it's a sub 10% of the things that we look at kind of make the cut. Why is finding something that works so hard? It's because finding a good standalone factor is actually not enough. You need one that can complement the factors that you already have exposure to. Here's another challenge. I've been wearing my momentum factor glasses, and I found the perfect stock. I've called Jacques, and I said I think we should invest. But then I take off those glasses, and I put on a different pair, my value factor glasses. And suddenly, that stock I carefully chose isn't looking too good. In geek speak, my two factors are negatively correlated. Value momentum, both on a standalone basis, are effective. And when you put them together, because they're negatively correlated, the combination is better than the sum of the parts. That negative correlation is actually pretty powerful. Think of it like this. Value alone works. And momentum alone works too. But because they're negatively correlated... When one underperforms, the other tends to pick up the slack. So what you really want is to find a stock that looks good using both those lenses. That's really the holy grail in this, is if you can find signals that are low to negatively correlated with what you currently have, then that's really going to be beneficial for your process. Wait, so hold up. Here's a pretty basic question. Let's say you have 10 factors to consider and you've spent like months researching the single best possible stock that looks really good on all those factors, why wouldn't you just invest all your money into that one stock and call it a day? Any one individual stock, there's really no chance that it's going to look good on all 10 signals. That's the reason why we build very diversified portfolios. If I use a lot of stocks that on average score highly on the 10 signals, then my whole combined portfolio will actually look good on all 10 signals. I like to assign grades to these stocks. Sarah Jang again. And kind of like what Jacques was saying, you might not find any that get an A-plus on all factors. So if stocks were students, is it better to have the student who gets an A in history but a D in math? Or do you want the all-around B-plus student? A stock that's an A on value is often a stock that's a D or F on momentum. Our research shows, however, that if you can find the stocks that are, let's say, a B or B plus on both value momentum, that's really the stock that you want to hold as opposed to a stock that's cheap, but that's cheap for a reason. So you want to find the cheap-ish stocks that are also showing signs of improvement. That combination is a pretty powerful combination. Hey, what do you say we go over what we learned this episode? Let's do it. We've learned that factors are characteristics of securities. Also, that not all factors are equally useful to investors, right? The good ones should have empirical evidence, they should be pervasive, and they need to be grounded in economic intuition or, you know, actually make sense. The main factors are value, momentum, carry, defensive, trend, and volatility. 
They can be applied in multiple asset classes, like stocks, bonds, commodities, and others. They can be long only or long short. And unlike your mechanic, individual factors might only work three years out of five. But in the long run, that can be very beneficial. Let's be clear. These factors work well, and we think you should trade on them. But there are lots of ways to do better than your standalone tried and true factors. You could combine them and take advantage of their low or negative correlations. That's a big step up. Or, and this is much harder, but definitely worthwhile, you could research new factors. We actually have entire teams focused on just this. So when you get down to the actual true number of factors that meet all the criteria and are truly representing individual idiosyncratic themes, it's a much smaller number and it is a bounded number. It can't grow infinitely. So you're, you're not going to buy our consonant versus vowel fund? No. <laughs> well, we're done I here. didn't even take the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> For folks who want to read more about factors, head to the Curious Investor page at aqr.com slash curious. There you'll find links to some of our favorite pieces on factors. You can also send us an email at curious at aqr.com. Next week on The Curious Investor, we talk to two investors who have opposite approaches when it comes to beating the average. Jack Bogle, the father of passive investing, and Cliff Asness, one of the biggest names in active investing. The index fund was totally scorned. We had quotes out there. Would you hire an average brain surgeon? <laughs> well, I wouldn't hire an average brain surgeon. I don't know about you all. I mean, they were just totally off the mark. Jack, you know the proper response is, I would hire an average brain surgeon as compared to hiring a random brain surgeon. <laughs> exactly. I'm Dan Villalon. And I'm Gabe Figali. Thanks for listening. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of AQR itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice, and should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions, which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. AQR does not assume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of AQR as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including any direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2018, AQR Capital Management, LLC. All rights reserved. Quants talk about something being orthogonal. What is that? I've been told to do this in sort of lay terms. So if you take a n-dimensional vector space... <laughs>